Welcome to COG, where we discuss topical issues in obstetrics and gynaecology. In this month's conversation, Associate Professor Ted Weaver talks to Professor Ian Hammond about the renewal of Australia's cervical screening program. With the implementation of the new cervical screening guidelines set for December, it's a great time to brush up on the evidence informing them with the man who spearheaded the renewal campaign. After that, we'll be discussing three articles in Journal Club related to HPV and cervical cancer. My name is Rachel Nugent. I'm a senior ONG trainee at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital in Queensland. And as always on COG, I'm joined today by my co-host, Ted Weaver. Hello, Rachel, and nice to be here. I must say I enjoyed chatting to Ian Hammond. He's an old friend and he's, a, I think, an extraordinary clinician. He's done a fantastic job in spearheading this change. It's interesting that Australia has been a little bit slow to adopt this change. I think there's been other countries that have gone to HPV screening in place of cytology well before Australia has. I think the Netherlands was the first country a few years ago to do that and there's now increasing evidence to suggest that it's a much safer way and a better way to provide cervical cancer screening. Today we're talking to Professor Ian Hammond who's chairman of a um, national group to revitalise the National Cervical Cancer Screening Guidelines which will replace the guidelines that were initially introduced in 1991. So Ian, welcome to COG. Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thank you, Ted. Now, you've been chairing this group for a couple of years now, and you've now got the guidelines finished. Can you just run through for the audience just what the main changes will be? Sure. And, um, and then we'll talk a little bit about the differences and how we hope to improve the outcome for women that we're screening. Okay. Well, I think it's a couple of things. Uh, I mean, I think there are, one needs to differentiate between guidelines and a national policy. Uh, what you alluded to is the 1991 change in policy for Australia where we had a national cervical screening program. We have introduced a two-year uh, pap smear program for women aged 18 or within a year of sexual, sexual activity and finishing after two-yearly screening at 69 years of age. And that, that program has produced fantastic uh, results in Australia for Australian women in that there's been a 50% reduction in the incidence of cervical cancer and a 50% reduction in the mortality from cervical cancer by just having a two-yearly pap smear in the age rate 18 to 69. Um, along with that, of course, around the year 2000, we produced what's called guidelines as opposed to policy. And the guidelines were to um, give information as to how to manage the abnormal results that were there. And they were, they were referred to as the NHLMRC guidelines. And that's one, one thing. So the management of abnormal test results. So we've done very well in Australia. With our, with our improvement in the incidence and mortality from cervical cancer, but we haven't really done very much to improve the, inc- the reduction in incidence or mortality from adenocarcinoma to cervix. Nearly all of the pro- improvement has come from squamous carcinoma, first of all. Um, the, the other thing is, since about 2000, 2002, there's been a plateauing of this improvement. So when we got this initial 50% drop uh, in, in incidence and mortality from 1991 onwards, after about 10 years, it's all plateaued out. We're still maintaining the results we have, but we're not doing any better. So because of that, there's been some discussion about, well, maybe we can do it differently. Maybe there's something else we could do to improve the results even further. Uh, on top of that, uh, there's been a recommendation in other countries internationally that perhaps we shouldn't be screening women until they reach 25 years of age. And some other countries only screen women every five years or every three years. In fact, the UK went to of three and five yearly screening in around 2003. Uh, other countries in Europe do five yearly screening and their results are the same as ours. Therefore, we thought, well, we'll look at it now and see if we can do better. Right, 
So you don't think there's been a lot of talk that the uh, the five-year interval in screening now is purely a health economic decision, but you're saying that it's actually based on good science? So what basically happened was the, the government, having received adequate funding, uh, Australian government, decided to renew the program, which is what you alluded to at the start. And this involved evidence gathering, health economic outcomes, health outcomes uh, evidence, and all of this was put together, commissioned by the Medical Service Advisory Committee of Australia, which is completely independent and just gives advice. And having considered all the evidence, they agreed that there was compelling evidence that we should stop using the pap smear, we should move to primary HPV screening, we should do the test every five years, and also in, in, to keep in line really with other countries, but on very good evidence, we should stop screening younger women and raise the age to 25 to start the program. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming and compelling for all of those things. Sure. And I know, I know there's been a lot of disquiet about increasing the screening age to 25. I know we haven't made any difference to the outcomes of cervical cancer treatment in the under 25s. But um, do you foresee any other difficulties with finally engaging women with screening at 25? So you mean if, if women are not screened earlier? Yes. Sure. Well, that has been a concern, and I suppose the thing to point out now, and this is underpinning the entire change in the program, which is actually pivotal to the whole thing, is yes, I think there is a risk of that, absolutely, because at the moment with our program, as you are aware, every state and territory maintains a cervical cytology register or cervical screening register. So every state has their own one. All the results from the laboratories for pap smears and biopsies taken from the cervix and an HPV test for uh, test of cure after treatment go to the registers and the registers provide information. But they don't actually invite people. They remind people if they fail to turn up for tests that seem to be appropriate. In the new order, starting in December of this year, women will be invited to participate. So it won't be left to an opportunistic visit to the doctor to say, oh, by the way, you're 25, you haven't had your new survival screening test. It'll be a letter from the National Cancer Screening Register saying, you will be 25 in the next month and we invite you to have a test done. So it's a very different approach because it's proactive. If they don't turn up, then they get a reminder. So what am I going to do when, when I, we haven't made any difference to the in, incidence of chlamydia and we've been, chlamydia screening's been hopeless in Australia, yet we haven't been able to do it systematically in any sort of way. What would I be doing if, if somebody came along at 21 for an STI screen? Would I opportunistically screen her for HPV then? Absolutely not, because, and one of the arguments has been around all this, of course, that women used to come regularly from around the age of 18, 19, mm -hmm. to have a, a, a pap test every two years, and this was a great opportunity actually to do opportunistic screening for chlamydia and so on, and therefore that opportunity is lost. The reverse is not true, though. The reverse is not true. That if you start doing HPV screening in these women, who are going to be a lot of them in this age group, coming to you for screening, sexual activity, and a pill, or whatever else they want, um, those women actually will be disadvantaged if you offer them the screen because if you offer them the screen first of all they'll have to pay for it personally and all the consequences of it secondly we know that the prevalence of hpv in women who are under 25 is very very high in the population uh, very high about 25 percent across the board of new sexual activity and that means a whole load of women who have got an infection that is never destined to cause them any problem whatsoever are going to suddenly be put onto this treadmill of investigation because they've got an abnormality the other thing is in the new order um, not only won't they be uh, reimbursed for it, the, the cost for them, but the laboratories will not really be able to give appropriate advice to women about what to do because these women are not supposed to be having this test in the first place. 
And so there just lead to over-investigation, the potential for inappropriate treatment of the cervix, and lead potentially to obstetric outcomes that are poor because you've got a short cervix due to sure. over-treatment. So that's, I, I, I'd strongly recommend you don't do it. Right. So do you have any data about that? I know that we, if someone has, say, one less procedure, that will increase your relative risk of preterm birth by two. Do you have any data for women less than 25 who've had had extirpative procedures for low-grade changes that probably would have regressed anyway? Uh, not not related to the less than 25-year-old people, but there's compelling data. Uh, Kiryu and the in the group that um, and Prindival and the group published uh, a meta-analysis. Uh, I don't know which year it is now, in 2006-7, round there uh, of of excisional treatments comparing laser, LETS, and, and, um, and scalpel cone. And they showed that scalpel cone and um, LETS were, uh, had a worse outcome uh, of, with, preterm, with preterm birth compared with uh, laser ablation. Laser didn't seem to have the same thing. I don't know why. I mean, not mm. numbers, I would think. That was subsequently repeated and reviewed and showed very, very significantly that cold knife cone um, and to a lesser extent LETS was followed by an increased rate of preterm birth, and the more the shorter the cervix is, the better, the, the worse it is. And in fact, as you know, um, there, there's recent compelling evidence that the length of the cervix is, in fact, a short cervix is actually an indicator of a higher risk for preterm birth. And we know that women that have had repeated less procedures um, have a much shorter cervix, and they're therefore at risk of preterm birth. So we know that the, the majority of cervix cancer in Australia now occurs in the group that are underscreened or never screened, um, and also in our Indigenous women. So how do you think your new program or your new guidelines will assist those women? Well, as you're aware, about 80% of um, the cervical cancers that we see today um, actually occur in women that have either never ever had a pap smear or, or, or overdue for their pap smear for at least one or two years. That, that, that's very solid data. So the question is, can you, can you bring these women to the table to have the test done and will, will we be able to improve it? Well, it may be that with the thought of having a five-yearly test, they might be more uh, encouraged to have it, but I think there are other factors probably one has to consider. Some of these women just are opposed to having this done, any sort of intervention, any sort of speculum examination and so on and so forth. They could have been physically abused. There are all sorts of things that may have happened to them. I think the and Indigenous women have a, a different approach, of course, to women's business and all the things that go on with it. However, um, there is a provision in the new program for self-collection of a vaginal sample, taking a vaginal swab to look for the HPV virus in the um, in the vaginal sample. And then if those women have actually got HPV there, they would be invited to have a cervical sample taken. Uh, there has, and that means it's a, the idea is to recruit women and improve, improve the participation of women. And, and I think you probably know that in Victoria and uh, New South Wales, there's been a study currently conducted called the IPAP study, and the IPAP study has actually recruited women on a mailing out kit. This is not going to happen in ours, but a mailing out kit to invite them to have a test when they are under screened or never screened. And the response was about 20% responded, only about 10% actually completed the task. But once they had the test done, once they did a swab themselves, they were very keen if it was positive to follow up with it. So once they knew something was wrong, they were very keen to do it. But it, it may only improve things by 3 or 4%, but by improving participation by 3 or 4%, hopefully we'll do, very, we'll do much more to reduce the survival cancer because the burden comes from that group. So given we're not doing well in, uh, for women in remote um, 
say, remote Indigenous women. We know that some countries in South Asia have had successes with see and treat teams. Have you, did you look at it doing anything like that for those sorts of communities, given that they, they may be less likely to engage in screening? Well, as you know, uh, you know, see and treat, uh, all sorts of uh, things have gone, in India particularly, they've done some studies, but one of the biggest randomised studies that was done regarding uh, you know, see and treat type things using uh, acetic acid on the cervix and then treating any white area and taking them. That was a randomised study, of course, performed in the early 2000s, which um, compared HPV screening, HPV screening, primary HPV screening with that. And it showed compellingly that primary HPV screening in a dedicated way was much better than actually doing the see and treat. And the other thing was, it was discussed particularly in relation to Indigenous women and the thing was it was said look we have a first-class developed world medical service in Australia and should we be offering third world care to the indigenous women and the answer was we, we felt compellingly and many people including the indigenous representatives that we should not be offering third-class care to first world people even though they are actually living in a somewhat more developed nations type style in their remote areas and so we want to offer them and bring them up to our level not to reduce things down to a, a third world Hmm. which is important. You were alluding um, in, in other uh, talks I've heard you give about the advent of the vaccinated cohort coming through, the, the reduction in cervical disease um, and the reduction in numbers of colposcopies that clinicians will perform. Do you fear that, that Australian gynaecologists may become less skilled in colposcopy? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, I think initially the answer is no, because we know that when we introduce HPV, at the moment, in HPV screening, we've got much greater sensitivity. So we're going to have a sudden rash of new cases. So in the first four or five years, three or four years at least, there'll probably be a slight rise in colposcopy, um, you know, uh, uh, probably about 20%, and then it'll be plateaued for two or three years, and then it will start to fall very dramatically uh, as, as the vaccinated cohort continue to get older and older and older, and the new vaccinated cohorts come mm -hmm. through. And we would have discovered new diseases with the advent of new HPV technology, and we will get rid of that disease. So I think that ultimately there'll be a lower level, but there'll always be a need for this until I think maybe 20 years time, 20, 30 years time, when the new vaccine is made available in the near future. In a couple of years, we'll have a nine valent vaccine instead of the four valent Gardasil, which does 6, 11, 16, 18. There'll be five more oncogenic HPV types added to the mix. So if you like Gardasil 2 or whatever they're going to call it, and that Gardasil 9, well, they probably but they don't call it Gardasil 4 now. You see, no, they don't. maybe they will call it Gardasil 9, <laughs> and that Gardasil 9 will protect against 90%, prevent 90% of the cervical cancer. Therefore, by that time, I reckon there'll be very little cervical cancer left. So in 30 years' time, we probably won't need a lot of colposcopy. But in the next foreseeable 10, 15 years, I think people have got to stay skilled. It may be fewer people do it to, main, to maintain expertise, but I think the majority of people who want to practice colposcopy now could practice colposcopy. Sure. And given the age now that we vaccinate um, school children for this disease, do you think, given that the, the age of first intercourse around 16 or so in Australia, is it early enough that we're catching them or should we be looking at doing it at age 9 or 10 rather than in early teenage? That was, of course, considered, as you know, by the, the, the HPV immunisation gurus, about what was the best time. And all of it was linked to uh, where where would you catch people best. And I think it was decided first year high school was the, the place to get them, 12 to 13. So 
uh, that's where they want that's where they want to get it and that's what they've suggested is, is the best place logistically across the board because very uh, only a tiny proportion of, of women and boys uh, are sexually active under the age of 13 very tiny proportion um, it's about you know 40 percent at 15 it's down to 20 20 15 percent at, uh, at 14 and, and very much lower under 14 so um, they're a special group so I think the answer is it's a reasonable 12 12 Think the other reason about the the age of nine uh, is we're still not quite sure, of course, about the length of duration of the vaccine, which we're giving three doses at the present time. Other countries now have taken the standard Gardasil schedule and reduced it to two doses, and that's been shown to be just as effective as three doses. And, and the long-term data is looking very good. With the nine-valent vaccine, it's expected to be the same. But the worry is if you start at nine or eight or whatever age, it may be harder to complete in those younger people. Um, the reaction, uh, not not adverse reaction, but just the reaction of them as young people developing it. But also, um, there's an issue around uh, maybe they've had that, that they don't know quite how long it's all going to last. So these women, they get it, the young girls get it at eight or nine. By the time they're 29, that's 20 years down the track, we still don't know the, the efficacy and long term duration of it all. But if you give it at 13, you know you've got your covering for at least 15 years and you've got the major impact of the first exposures to. Um, the, the, uh, the virus. Sure. And we're, you're, you were saying that with the, the vaccine and perhaps with the expanded vaccine that may be coming, we'll do very well in reducing the incidence of cervical cancer. What about other cancers that are, that are ward virus related, like anogenital cancers and laryngeal cancers and vulvar sure. cancers? Where do you think the, how do you think the incidence of those would be affected? Well, I think the, the major, when you look at the major benefit from, uh, I haven't got these slides with me or the date, the actual numbers, um, but I, I, it's the major effect, I've been to some talks, they've talked about male vaccination, um, female vaccination, and when you get the HPV uh, or Gardasil 9, the nine valent vaccine, would you apply this to males as well because of the relationship, there's many more of these oropharyngeal oro, uh, cancers and anal cancers and same-sex relationships and so on in men. Uh, the answer is that nearly all of the benefit, economic benefit particularly, and health benefit, comes from women in cervical <laughs> cancer. And the, the vulva and vagina and thing is, is a minor component really in terms of numbers. Sure, that will benefit, that will benefit. But in terms of, it really are, the answer is, should we be extending nine-valent vaccine to men and the general feeling at the moment is there's not going to be a major benefit, but they'll probably stop producing Gardasil 4. There will only be Gardasil 9, therefore they'll have it extended anyway. Mm. And what about pathology companies? How, just when we introduced this new program, how, how well tooled up are they to, to cope with this? Obviously, their, their cytology burden will drop, but the, the ward virus testing will increase exponentially. There's been a, a massive problem with this, as I'm sure you're aware, that the uh, big laboratories... Um, employ a lot of staff, cytotechnology, cytotechnicians that screen the pap smears. The number of pap or cytologies, is not going to be called a pap smear, we're already called a liquid-based cytology after when you get a positive HPV test. The number of slides that will need to be looked at ultimately for mm -hmm. cytology will be about 70% less, which means they're going to actually lose about seven or don't need 70% of their workforce. The problem is that they're going to need a fair amount of workforce in the first two or few, two years because there'll be quite a large number being done, standard number of, of HPV tests. Then there'll be a five-year interval where there'll be little done during that. And then in years uh, six and seven, 
there'll be a peak again where they're going to get a load of cytology, but they, meanwhile they won't have kept the cytologists on their staff. So the staff, they're actually grappling at the moment with government assistance to have strategies whereby they can maintain their cytology expertise to cover these periods of fluctuation over the next six or seven years, which they will need to do. The laboratories themselves have, are tooling up completely with the new technology machinery to do HPV testing um, and the liquid-based cytology, which they've had for some time. They've used FinPrep or SurePath for some time. I understand that FinPrep will probably have the major market share that run produced by Hologic. But that will probably be it. But that, that doesn't really matter. That's just a, a medium to take the sample when you take the cervical sample. And then ultimately, the laboratories are getting ready. They just need um, to make sure they can get their staffing right and their numbers right. Right. And the, the, the peak in five to seven years, that will be the under-screeners and never-screeners coming on the program? No, no, it'll be. The, the reason is because in the first two years, you're going to have people who are being invited. The people who are coming up now, you're, you're, um, say a woman uh, who two years, 18 months ago, had her pap smear. She'll be due to have her pap smear again in two right, years. Yes. So she'll turn up and have her test done. It'll be an HPV test. So there'll be a lot of women currently in the program who are, 24, 23, 24, 25 years of age or over, they'll have a test done and that will produce the standard number, say 2 million, let's just say 2 million tests or 2.5 million tests being done per annum. So they'll still have the same number being done right now. But what will happen is they won't come back for five years. Right. They'll be negative. Yeah, yeah. So in between, you're going to get low levels of these two years and then they'll come back for their five-year test and they'll all come back at the same time. So in year six and year seven, we're going to have all these people come back. Right. So the year one people will come back in year six, the year two will come back in year seven. In between, there'll be a low level, but they've got to somehow cope with this surge in year six and seven. And then after that, they'll, they'll drop and there'll be a lesser surge in years 11 and 12. It just won't be as big and gradually it'll peter out to a very low level, but it'll take some time. The laboratories uh, are dealing with it. Sure. And just, just to be clear for our listeners, um, in women who are, have already been diagnosed as, as having a cervical abnormality and are undergoing currently um, follow-up, that follow-up will remain broadly yes, the same. So women, with women right now, so prior to the new era, which is the 1st of December 2017, let's say a woman in the last 12 months has been diagnosed with a low-grade uh, squamous abnormality on a, on a pap smear. Her recommendation would be to come back in 12 months. Mm-hmm. So she'll turn up in, uh, let's say, June uh, 2018, which is when she was due to have a follow-up. And instead of having a PAP test, she'll have an HPV test. Right. And if HPV is discovered, she'll have a cytology done there and then. It's a reflex cytology done on the same sample. If it's not discovered, she's told to come back in five years for a routine screening test. Uh, likewise, women who've been treated for, say, CIN3 or adenocarcinoma in situ, they would normally be coming back for their routine test in 12 months' time for a test of cure, say. They would come back and have their test of cure. They'd have an HPV test and they'll have uh, a cytology done. This time it'll be a liquid sample instead of, instead of taking a scraping from the cervix, you know, a spatula and a, a brush. They'll do it all in one sample and it'll go off. It's called a co-test and you ask for both and that would happen in 12 months. So basically, whatever your schedule would be for follow-up of a woman right now, whether it's coming back for a routine pap smear, whether it's coming back for a follow-up for a low-grade, they, they front up. And if they're women who've had a high-grade abnormality discovered, you just manage them in the normal way that you manage them with colposcopy and biopsy and all the various things. And perhaps finally, we might just talk about the incidence of adenocarcinoma because we've made no difference to, to the um, cure rate of that in the last, using the current National Cervical Cancer Screening Guidelines. Correct. And so we're, 
I think you're very hopeful that with HPV testing, we, we will start to make inroads into that disease. Yeah, well, one of the problems, as, you, as you're very much aware, we've had basically uh, the, all the fall in cervical cancer. The benefit for screening has come from the reduction in squamous cancer. There's been nothing happening with that in Lancaster. I'm sure individual cases have been discovered here and there with a, with a pap test. They found glandular cells and they treated them. But the, it, overall, as a national program, it hasn't made a big impact and certainly doesn't show up in the data. The, the theory is, and it's a good theory, there, there's good evidence that the PAP test is not really good at discovering abnormal glandular cells. It just isn't good at doing it. But the HPV test will find an abnormality in the HPV or detect HPV. And then when those women, let's just say we happen to know, we have insight that they have a glandular abnormality, no one else knows, you and I know, Ted. Yes. They look, they look at it and what happens is when the laboratory has the positive HPV, they'll look and first they look for squamous cells in the cytology they don't find them. It's no longer a screening cytology. It is a diagnostic cytology mm. after this HPV test. The evidence is from the randomized controlled trials that have been done. Ronco is published in Lancet 2014 in January. They showed that all of the benefit from primary HPV screening in redu 60 to 70% reduction of cancer, most of, nearly all of it was due to reduction in invasive cancer adenocarcinoma of the cervix. Right. So, we believe that the HPV will find it, then the diagnostic cytology uh, will be much more detailed than screening cytology. We hope that we'll be able to replicate these findings from these randomized control studies. So how long do you think, that's looking into the future, will we be a cervical cancer-free world? Is that possible, do you think? Uh, Apart from, yeah, it's a rare, really... Well, I think cervical cancer-free world would depend upon vaccination being available in all countries of the world. In Australia, I attended a presentation recently by Dr. Julia Brotherton, who's the executive director of the National HPV Register, the vaccination register based in Melbourne. And she showed a wonderful slide, uh, which basically showed that if you vaccinate the men and vaccinate the women, but women I mean, at school, with nine valent vaccine, you have the potential because of cross reactivity and you know all that herd immunity to actually eradicate cervical cancer if you could get about 90 to 95% coverage with that vaccine. You don't have to have 100%. You could do it with about 90%, 90 to 95 So the answer is screening won't do it, but H HPV vaccination would certainly do it if we can get it across the whole country. And if it's across the whole world, it'd be wonderful. Of course, as you know, the tragedy of it all is it's the developed countries that have access to this and not the underdeveloped countries which have all the cancer of the cervix. Right. So all you anti-vaxxers out there, please take heed of what Professor Hammond just said. And on that note, we might end. So thank you very much, Ian. That's my, my pleasure, Ted. Thank very you. good. Thank you. Next up on COG, Journal Club. And as always, you can access the articles we discuss in Journal Club at our website, cog.podbean.com. The first article is called Cervical Cancer, A Global Health Crisis by William Small uh, and several other co-authors, uh, published in Cancer in July 2017. The authors of this study are based all around the world. There's members from the USA, from Canada, the UK, as well as here in Australia. Uh, and it's a really excellent summary of cervical cancer as it applies to the developed world as well as to developing countries. What struck me about this article was the relevance of it to our region. Certainly Australia and New Zealand have both been very effective in reducing the rates of cervical cancer, both the morbidity and mortality from cervical cancer by their well-resourced screening programs. But we can't forget that cervical cancer, certainly in Melanesia, 
and Polynesia, so in other words, in Papua New Guinea and to the islands in the Pacific, cervical cancer screening is virtually non-existent and that the mortality and morbidity from this disease is widespread. Yeah, the introduction really sets the tone for this article. It states that the three-year local control rate for early stage cancer is 87 to 95% and for advanced cancer is 74 to 85%. Whereas in underdeveloped countries, the three to five-year survival is less than 50%. That's quite a stark difference between developed and developing nations. And this underpins, I guess, the importance of having programs that allow vaccination of populations in these resource-poor countries. It's interesting to remember that the first trials done on Gardasil were done in Vanuatu and in the Solomon Islands, which provided virtually 100% protection for the vaccinated group. And when we look at the incidence of the disease in those countries, it's very important to look at how we can resource vaccination programs there. Some important highlights about prevention that came from this article for me was the discussion around the release of the non-availant vaccine Gardasil 9, which prevents HPV 16, 18 and 7 other oncogenic strains, and also discusses the discrepancy between vaccination rates in high-resource and low-resource countries. And the tragedy is that most cervical cancer occurs in countries where the vaccine isn't available. I think an important advent in vaccination against cervical cancer is that the two-dose regimen appears to be as effective as the three-dose, and that might be an important resource issue with respect to trying to roll out vaccinations in developing countries. This article discussed some of the other really interesting work that's being done, and one thing that caught my eye was the discussion of the SHAKE trial, which is the simple hysterectomy and pelvic node dissection in early cervix cancer, trial evaluating simple versus radical hysterectomy for patients with cervical tumours measuring less than two centimetres in size. Uh, I think it's important to remember in low resource settings a simple hysterectomy might be a more viable alternative uh, and it's exciting to see some research being done that might make good care available to more women around the world. The other interesting discrepancy for me between high and low resource settings was the absolute absence of brachytherapy in many nations around the world. And when brachytherapy is one of the mainstays of the treatment of advanced cervical cancer, it really is a big gap in the care for a lot of women. Remembering that low resource settings are the places where the vaccination isn't available and also where women are going to present with more advanced disease. So this article also talks about a group called the Gynecological Cancer Intergroup and the Cervix Cancer Research Network, uh, which is an international group which aims to promote and facilitate high quality clinical trials to improve outcomes for women with gynecological cancer. For any exam candidates, I think this is a really excellent summary of uh, the state of cervical cancer across the world at the moment. I agree. And I guess it shows we've still got a long way to go to eradicate these diseases and in low-resource settings, even in our own country. In a high-resource country, we still have women who fall through the cracks in screening. And so I agree the article's an excellent summation of where we are worldwide with cervical cancer. Still a common disease and still a, the cause of many women to die. Cervical cancer is the fourth most frequently occurring malignancy in women worldwide. Incidence is greatly reduced in high-resource settings where prevention is available with Gardasil and cervical screening programs. Morbidity and mortality is reduced in these settings due to access to state-of-the-art care. Improving outcomes for cervical cancer for women in low- and middle-income countries is a global health priority. The next article 
is entitled, How Will Transitioning from Cytology to HPV Testing Change the Balance Between the Benefits and Harms of Cervical Cancer Screening? And the article estimates the impact on cervical cancer treatment rates and adverse obstetric outcomes in Australia, a high vaccination coverage country. And this article was published in the International Journal of Cancer this year and comes from a number of centres in Australia, in Sydney, Melbourne and also a group in China. And the lead author was Louisa Valensis but features other people who are epidemiologists, gynaecological oncologists, cytologists and so on. And what the article essentially goes on to explain is that primary HPV screening enables earlier diagnosis of cervical lesions compared with cytology. However, its effect on the risk of treatment and adverse obstetric outcomes has not been extensively investigated. So what the article looks to do is to estimate the cumulative lifetime risk of cervical cancer and excisional treatment and changes in adverse obstetric outcomes in HPV unvaccinated women and cohorts offered vaccination through the Australian Cervical Cancer Screening Program. So what we already know is that excisional treatments for lesions detected during cervical screening might increase the risk of adverse obstetric outcomes in women who had CIN. And whether the risk of adverse outcomes differs by screening method in the context of HPV vaccination status was examined in this study. And what they found was that compared with cytology screening every two years, primary HPV screening every five years was associated with a decreased lifetime risk of cervical cancer diagnosis and death, regardless of whether the women were vaccinated against HPV. And HPV screening in the vaccinated population was predicted to decrease the lifetime risk of excisional treatment. But old ducks like me, who are unvaccinated in an unvaccinated cohort, the risk of excisional treatment actually increases. Mm. Uh, and the risk of having premature or low birth weight infant actually increases over the lifetime. However, 87% of babies are born to women in the vaccinated cohort. So it's less of an issue and will become less of an issue as women 37 and above start moving past their childbearing years. The final, I guess, take home message for me was, was that there'll, there'll be somewhere in the group that they studied, somewhere between 38 and 198 fewer preterm delivery events um, and 12 to 243 fewer low birth weight events um, per 100,000 vaccinated women compared to current practice. So in other words, if we can avoid unnecessary excisional treatments in women, we'll do a lot to prevent both preterm birth and also low birth weight babies with, again, you'd expect um, improvements in perinatal morbidity and mortality. I think what's really interesting is that this research focuses on the quadrivalent vaccine which is in use in Australia now and all the modelling is based on the quadrivalent vaccine but we're expecting yeah. the vaccination program from next year will use Gardasil 9 which will affect the modelling in this study and so the authors comment themselves that in about 15 years when the newly vaccinated cohort hits the screening program all this modelling will have to be redone to see the impact on colposcopy and cervical abnormalities and cancer. That's right. We hope that Gardasil 9, as it's purported to do, will cover 90 to 93% of cervix cancer. So its addition to our therapeutic armamentarium is welcome. Take a message from me from this study is that 
the new screening program using HPV-based screening will reduce the numbers of excisional treatments for um, CIN. And we know that the excisional treatment is associated with a relative risk of preterm birth of somewhere around about two to three, and perhaps even higher with cone biopsy. So the take-home message for me also is that this new HPV screening program will reduce cervical cancer diagnosis, reduce excisional treatment in the vaccinated cohort, and will have flow-on beneficial effects to reducing the preterm birth and low birth weight complications in the obstetric cohort. The other benefit that I would just like to point out is that is that in we will now have with this this screening um, program a potential way of following up adenocarcinoma in situ. So women who previously may have had to have a hysterectomy as as final treatment or definitive treatment for their adenocarcinoma in situ can now keep their uterus um, and be followed up with um, HPV screening, which then may um, allow them the opportunity to. Um, reproduce further should they wish to do so. This is the first paper of its kind examining the effect of the new cervical screening program in Australia for women. Five-yearly primary HPV screening decreases lifetime risk of diagnosis or death with cervical cancer. The renewed cervical screening program will reduce excisional treatments in vaccinated women and reduce preterm birth and low birth weight infants for women in that cohort. The school-based vaccination program in Australia will use the non-avalent HPV vaccine, Gardasil 9, from 2018. Our third article in Journal Club today is entitled Human Papillomavirus in Cervical Cancer and Oropharyngeal Cancer, One Cause, Two Diseases, by Tara Berman and John Schiller, both from Maryland, and it was published in Cancer in June of this year. So look, this is a really nice review article that compares cervical cancer and oropharyngeal cancer with respect to epidemiology, treatment, screening and primary prevention. OPC is on the rise, particularly in the United States where this research is based, and HPV-associated OPC now accounts for 70% of oropharyngeal cancer. This is a distinction between the OPC caused by HPV and that caused by other toxins like alcohol and tobacco and what we're going to talk about now focuses on HPV related OPC. I think for me what's really interesting about this is that there are a lot of similarities between cervical cancer and oropharyngeal cancer but there are some differences as well. 70% of HPV associated cervical cancers are related to HPV 16 and 18 whereas nearly 90% of oropharyngeal cancers are associated with 16 and 18. They have a relatively similar age of detection, 49 years for cervical cancer and 54 years for OPC, and a latency period too, which which is fairly similar, with HPV-associated cervical cancer having a latency period of about 30 years and OPC having a 10 to 30-year latency period. Obviously, 100% of women are affected by cervical cancer, with 70% of men being affected by oropharyngeal cancer. A big difference is that we have well-documented pre-malignant lesions with respect to cervical cancer, and there's some uncertainty around whether or not a pre-malignant lesion exists with oropharyngeal cancer. So what was interesting for me with this article was that HPV oropharyngeal cancer is only one of five cancers with a rising incidence in the USA since 1975. And it's now taken over the cervix as the most common site of HPV-related cancer, which is, you know, to me was interesting. I remember when the ward virus epidemic first started, or we could detect it in the early 80s, that there was a fear that we would see 
lots of babies born with laryngeal papillomatosis, which would then predispose them towards laryngeal cancers and other oropharyngeal cancers. Now, I think that we're not at the epidemic stage with this disease by any means, but it's interesting that we are seeing a rise in HPV-related oropharyngeal cancers. And presumably this is related to sexual practices with oral sex performed by both men and women. And again, just highlights the numbers of different cancers associated with HPV because we've also seen a rise in the numbers of anorectal cancers associated with HPV as well. So I think we have to be vigilant with this and it'll be interesting to see if the incidence of this disease have quickly drop as the vaccinated cohorts start to grow and reach the age when they might be expected to be initially diagnosed with oropharyngeal cancer. Another interesting observation from this article was that it noted that partners of patients with HPV-related oropharyngeal tumours don't seem to have more frequent oral HPV infections, downplaying the role of oral-to-oral -oral transmission. So HPV-associated oropharyngeal carcinoma does seem to be a disease caused by oral sex, basically. So it would seem. Risk factors including a high number of lifetime vaginal sex partners, more than 25, and greater than or equal to six lifetime oral sex partners, a female partner with anogenital HPV-associated SEC, and of course cigarette smoking, alcohol use, and immunocompromised status. Mm. Overall though, the prognosis for OPC is better than cervical cancer. The five-year survival rate of HPV-associated OPC is 85 to 90%, whereas the five-year survival rate of HPV-associated cervical cancer is only 68%. There is strong evidence that the vaccine is efficacious in preventing cervical cancer. However, only one study to date has reported HPV vaccine efficacy against oral infection, and it was done in young Costa Rican women using the bivalent vaccine, which showed to reduce the prevalence of oral HPV 16 and 18 infection by 93% compared with the control arm, approximately four years after vaccination. Unfortunately, because of the 30-year latency period from exposure to disease, we're not going to see a reduction in oropharyngeal cancer for some years to come. Yeah. And I think it makes biological sense that in time we will see a reduction, but we have to await further studies. So the take-home practice point, Ted? The take-home practice point from me is that it emphasises the need for adequate coverage of the vaccine, and I think people have quoted that we, that we need to have at least 70% of the both male and female populations vaccinated to ensure adequate coverage. Clearly we'd like to see it much higher than that. I think we need to have a watching brief on these sorts of cancers and again emphasising the importance of cancer registries. And thirdly, I think people need to know the outcome of some sexual practices, that everything in life carries a risk, even including something as... Um, Enjoyable. As <laughs> enjoyable as oral sex. It's important that patients understand that for those practitioners of oral sex that there may potentially be a downside to it. It also emphasises again the, the need to make sure or you know to engage in smoking reduction programs because I think that's that'll eliminate another risk for the development of oropharyngeal cancers. The take-home message to me is just to be open about science from other fields because with cross-collaboration, this is usually an ENT-type mm. area. I am fairly unfamiliar with oropharyngeal cancer. And, you know, it's just pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that help us understand this disease and how we can beat it. Oropharyngeal cancer is now the most common HPV-associated cancer in the USA. 
HPV 16 and 18 are associated with 90% of oropharyngeal cancer and 70% of cervical cancer. Further research is required to establish the efficacy of the HPV vaccine for preventing oropharyngeal cancer. Thanks very much for tuning into this episode of Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynaecology. We hope that this has been an informative discussion about HPV screening for cervical cancer. And we look forward to sharing with you our next program, which will be on... For our next conversation, I'll be heading to Auckland for the Ranscog ASM. I'm really excited to be talking to Professor Aaron Cockey, a maternal fetal medicine specialist from Portland, Oregon. Uh, He's also a health economist and, would you believe, a Grammy winner. The grumpy gynecologist Dr. Faber Svensson and I will be kicking around Auckland for the ASM, so please do come and have a chat. Uh, if you'd like to give us any feedback regarding the program, as always, you can find us at cog.podbean.com. We're on Facebook and iTunes, Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynecology. So you'd better stay tuned. Until next time. Thanks for joining us in Conversations in Obstetrics.